my my viewpoint on that is that we have more collectors globally who have moved past the names in the gift shop who've drank the Kool-Aid, who are looking around more broadly, listening to more dealers, you know, getting more educated and seeing things that are great and not just because they're the ones that get the most museum circulation or the artists who have museums named after them. So I think I think that's part of it. And it's just hunting for things. You know, everyone's got a different motivation for why they hunt for things. But I think there is a point at which you start to look around and you think this is this stuff over here is nuts. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. This is our hot list for the second quarter of 2022. Using Live Art's comprehensive data, we looked at the sales in April, May, and June in London, New York, and Hong Kong. We tried to identify the artists with high hammer ratios across multiple sales. Hammer ratio is the hammer price over the low estimate. We narrowed that list to a few dozen artists, excluding, for example, the names from the winter hot list. Then we boiled it down further to 16 artists whose markets we think are worth paying some attention to right now. We covered nine artists in the first episode. In this one, George Odell discusses the markets for Sam Gilliam, A.R. Penk, with a side tangent on Georg Bezelitz and some other European artists, Yuichi Hirako, Susumo Kamijo, Louis Frattino, Ross Blackner, along with some other rediscovered artists from the 1980s, Danielle Orchard, and finally, George offers his take on the market conditions going into the fall. If you want to follow along as we discuss the sales, go to analytics.liveart.io. Type the artist name into the navbar search window in the upper right-hand corner. Once you're on the artist page, scroll down to the search result. In the right-hand corner, you can sort by date sold, newest to oldest, or use the auction sales tab to select only the sales for 2022. Now, let's hear from George. So almost under the radar, there were a couple of strong Sam Gilliam sales. Again, no, no, no major numbers, but there was a, a piece at um, Phillips that sold for 370000 That was, uh, you know, a beveled canvas, not bright colors. Mm -hmm. There was a work on paper that made 88000 Later in May, there was a work at Bonhams that made 125, and then one at Sotheby's that made 300. And Sotheby's has spent a lot of time working through the Gilliam market. And I would almost say this is like a mid 80s work. It's probably a different phase of Gilliam's work that they were getting good prices for. It's a big art world. There are many markets within it. And, you know, sometimes we get distracted if it's not at the sort of highest level, but this is a sort of work a day, people making. You know, progress? Well, I think, you know, Gilliam, the Gilliam story, uh, the narrative of Gilliam as it relates to DC Colorfield plucked out of obscurity from the start of that show that Rashid Johnson curated with Kordansky, which was the striped, very Nolan's body of work, into the discovery of the beveled edges and, 
you know, the other other pieces that come from them and then into the 80s and 90s pieces, which are radically different from all of that. You know, this, the story of the beveled edge and some of the drapes have really been told in, in terms of discovery in an auction catalog. And then you had the big museum show in Basel and you had a lot of very good museum placements. So it sort of felt like that discovery narrative had been told. And sure, if a you know, huge beveled edge painting came onto the market, you would for sure get a good result for it. What I think is more interesting is that, you know, all of a sudden you've got 90s paintings making north of $100,000, right? So like, is there a push into some of the stuff that happens between Drapes and Beveled Edges and the late work that he starts producing for David Kodansky and others, like right towards the end of his, his life? You know, which a lot of those watercolor pieces, which were priced in the kind of, you know, mid hundreds level, were very much felt like the stuff that had come back in the in the 70s, right? It had that same kind of cleanliness, fluidity to it. So, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see now that he has sadly passed, what happens to not just the established work that everyone believes is great and overlooked within its moment in the DC color field school, but what happens to that 80s, 90s block of material? I think the output that occurs, you know, in the last few years, once he's finally been given the recognition due, right? Like that that stuff all kind of has its price points. It is what it is. It, it fits into a lot of collections across the board, not you know, international collections and American collections and abstraction collections and collections that people just have because they buy stuff because they like it and they're not any grand thesis statement. I guess in thinking about other narratives like that, you know, Gilliam sort of felt like Jack Whitten in a lot of ways. Like the story got told, the prices were established, the gallery representation, you know, Whitten with Hauser, Gilliam with Pace and Kordansky, like this had all been solidified and sort of the legacy set. So there wasn't going to be another moment of price discovery on the tippy top that pulls everything up. I think what we'll see now is probably something more akin to like late Sam Francis, right? Like these things will take on markets of their own based on type of medium and year of work that it, you know, de which decade did it come from? What type of medium is it? ultimately what is its aesthetic and i think actually the san francis market is probably a good one to, to look at in that regard so there's almost no way to make a segue from sam gilliam to a.r Penck, but maybe you can do it i mean my favorite my favorite quote on um a.r Penck comes from wikipedia i think a couple sentences in that he was an enthusiastic drummer which probably tells me something not so informative but kind of interesting about his his artwork and his lifestyle. Um, Pank, you know, Pank's a Pank's an interesting one to talk about because, you know, having lived in in Europe for a long time, Pank is a name. Pank is something people are excited about. And, you know, when does Pank hit the American market and change things? And it, you know, we haven't surpassed a London sales result as the top result for an eagle. You know, and I think I think overall Pank, the Pank market is still trying to figure itself out. You know, I think it's going to, it's more robust than say the Baseler market. And it's already set at a much higher price point, you know, across the board, say one top result. But you know, generally, I think we are, you know, still in discovery mode as to what is a great pank, what are the best dates, what are the best figures. And this will continue to play out much like the American collections of similar age, the European collections that house these great things probably, I would say, primarily in Denmark and Germany is where the most of them sit. As those come to fruition and those get reshown or sold or traded onwards, 
we're going to start seeing, you know, what a great tank demands and, you know, where the next generation of collectors are willing to pick up, you know, that market. What I hear you saying is that the significance of the sale is not that it's the second highest price. It's that it's the second highest price at $560,000 you know, set in New York. The fact that right. it was bid up in New York, even if it's bought by Europeans you know, uh, uh, on the internet or on the phone, it's the, the, the marketing aspect of a auction that enough other people are seeing it and saying, hey, that, that pink just got bid up to you know, four times its low estimate. So, something's right. going on here. If you look at the top five and possibly even the top 10 results, the number two result from May at Christie's is the only one that occurs in the United States. The rest of the sales are all London, Paris, or Amsterdam. And the bulk of them are London sales. So it's significant. That result is significant, I think, in the same way that you start to see the Boslitz paintings, you know, the great Boslitz paintings of the world start appearing in New York auctions rather than in London sales. Right. Here's a shift in the market where we say this is, you know, been given the kiss on the forehead. It is New York evening sale marquee sale week, you know, viable piece of material. This one comes because it's part of a much more dynastic, important collection. Let me ask a, a Basilitz question then. Is that because of the retrospective at the Pompidou or all of the work that Ropak has been doing over the last several years at art fairs? I think, and it's not just Ropak, I think there's, you know, other players involved there too. I think we saw on the eve of the pandemic that great Basquiat um, Boslet show at Scarsdale on 64th Street, right? That, you know, that was a real standout moment in terms of looking at Boslets in the city. And I don't think New York City or America has really seen a great Boslets exhibition. You know, beyond those who are immersed in this world, he's the guy who paints upside down things. But there's all this storytelling that can go on. And yes, there are some great American Boslets collectors. I think maybe the preeminent collector of Boslitz while he has a castle in Germany is, you know, ultimately British, but lives mostly in America. So I think we have, you know, I think the, the greater the greater Americans who haven't fully, you know, baptized themselves in the world of post-war art, I have yet to understand the, the Boslitz story. But it's interesting that, you know, broad paintings and other ma major works that come out on market are starting to appear with more regularity in the New York sales, like, the fact that the Elka sculpture makes this huge price in New York rather than being sold in London, the number of heroes that appear at the same time, orange eaters, all these, you know, A plus moments in the Boslitz, the, the story of Boslitz are occurring in the market sense in America. So I think that's a testament to the dealers involved, both in the primary and on the secondary. And some of the in some of the more recent museum shows that we've seen in Pompidou, Basel, and elsewhere that have given a broader public scope to to see these things. And, and by New York, what we're saying is global, right? The, the, the way the art market is currently structured, New York is the most visible place to sell things. When we see things being sold in Hong Kong, that's showing a, a, a particular either attempt to interest Asian buyers or demonstration that Asian buyers are, are most relevant and, you know, the auction houses are, are catering to them, giving them sort of pride of place. And for better or worse, given Brexit and other things, the London sales have become something slightly different. But but to still to see European and, and, and many of the very European artists are being sold in Paris these days. So to see these these artists like Boslitz and Pank 
take a sort of special place in New York is a way of saying that their their global time may be coming or has come. Totally. And I think in, in terms of other European, you know, artists outside of Germany, look at Soulage. All of a sudden you've got Soulage appearing outside of the French markets, right? So the push to, you know, Baslitz is a you know juggernaut in terms of contemporary post-war and contemporary art, but also, you know, a pillar of German art. So, you know, how do you push that further, educate people farther? you know, and really show the importance of the various decades and output of his work, because like other things we talked about, there are many different facets of the artist. And I think, say, a certain circle of collectors, most people are kind of used to, in the United States, the later work only. So kind of Elka's self-portraits and, you know, the the, the Friends paintings that he did at Gagosian in 2019, like the Upside Down de Kooning and the you know, various authors and poets and other artists that he painted the portraits of. I don't think there has been as much historical material shown, say, things inside private museums or painting here and there within a greater public collection. Um, but so it's, it's interesting to see that validation come on the side of the public auction markets where they're saying like, okay, now we're going to show a drinker, an orange eater, uh, a hero, a hero drawing in the New York space rather than say, oh, you know, this could be a cover lot for London. It's the validation of putting it into New York, I think, pushes it to another level. Besides Richter, there are no slam dunk German artists. I mean, there are plenty of German artists who sort of come and go on the world stage or are well recognized, but, you know, not everything. Um, and there's been a struggle recently, uh, especially at Phillips with a number of so what should be tried and true German artists. So I'm just trying to illustrate the context of it is it's not like, okay, let's just get grab another German. It's a real sense like uh, th there's a, a market here. There's an audience mm -hmm. for this work. But I think it's interesting, the, the volume, you know, would be sort of deviated from Pank to talk about Germany as a whole, but, you know, seeing the, the historical pieces of Boslitz, you know, less historical pieces of Kiefer, right? Those still seem to appear over in Europe. And right, none of it has the same slam dunk in your face mass appeal that, you know, a Richter squeegee painting does, which they appear globally and, you know, aren't, you know, we haven't touched anywhere near the same kinds of prices. Maybe Kippenberger has gotten close at you know at best but um overall overall i think there's still room for growth right you know i don't think the best examples of albert olin hit the new york markets yet i don't think the united states understands albert olin fully yet i think that can change in time probably more historical shows i think olin's output's getting really strong post 2000s as well so it doesn't just have to be the 90s story there's more to come but i think i think we will i think we will see more of that and probably more of that as we move maybe into a time of more blue chip things and less frothy young things we might start to see become aware of you know these these stories might take shape in a different kind of way it's one of the interesting things about the cycles of these markets that the next phase for blue chip work is probably for a lot of these important post-war names who are very familiar but never quite had prices that matched and in a weird way i think of calder who's you know got a huge market, obviously, but it was only in the last few years that there was a significant rise with the Calder prices that in any way matched his fame, recognition, recognizability among ordinary people, not just, you know, collectors. I was going to say, I think it's something like the con sale at Christie's, right, that grabs so much attention. Here's this collector couple 
with all these great examples and they all hit the market at once. Yeah. And in that same floodgate style, I think look at the Diebenkorn market. And then remember that sale where there was you know, eight plus Diebenkorns in one sale, you know, and all of a sudden here comes the Diebenkorn market. And now that's solidified and tried and true. And people, you know, are feel secure in it when a good one in decent condition comes out, like it commands a big price. So no, I think I think there's lots of analogies within that. I'd love to see the Kirkaby market. Speaking of non-German Europeans, come into the fold and really start to make big prices. Speaking of the recently demised uh, 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 European painters, in an abstract format, yes. Let's go to Asia. Yuichi Hirako is having a run, mostly in Asian sales, but. But, you know, throughout this sort of spring, the work's interesting. It's kind of got a, a, a Shara Hughes kind of vibe to it. But I don't know much about the artist. I can't say much beyond it's an aesthetic that I think we're pushing towards. As you know, kind of Shara Hughes, is it abstract? Is it landscape? You know, it's interesting to look through what has sold. Most of it's in Hong Kong. Most of it is landscape or kind of a blend of surrealism and landscape. And again, like Antono that we were talking about before, it's a it's across painting, works on paper, additions, sculptural additions. So again, one of these artists that kind of has that mass appeal, broad collector base at a lower price point. So it's kind of speaking to a different side of the market, probably a much different side of the market than the conversation we were just having about Boslitz and Pank. Um, you know, I think there's this is this is totally for a different generation. And you know, for now feels like it is a Hong Kong and Taiwan market, you know, based on what I can see in terms of historical result. Will it branch out beyond that? I don't think we've written that yet. We're, we're not dealing with too many results so far. We're just dealing with a lot of volume all of a sudden. So I think that's a that's a watch the space situation. And another artist who sort of was hiding in plain sight is Susumu Kamijo who has a very distinctive, you know, so many of these works with the poodle, uh, but also endless variety and variation uh, uh, on that. And, and it certainly seems like it finally is beginning to break out. You know, there was a sale last November at 274000 but I, I, I think it slightly took people by surprise that there was another one at 224 in Hong Kong in May. Yeah, and that the pricing remains consistent. You know, I, you know if we had been talking, you know, prior to these results, you know, I, I don't know that I would have had much much to say that, you know, you know, the poodles march on here, but they seem to have a market, much like some of the other artists we've spoken about in this convert, you know, in this conversation today, that, you know, just because one person or a group of people aren't looking at this is not to say that another group isn't. So I think we've seen that stratification of collector bases where people are collecting things in isolation of other market trends and the, you're creating these kind of markets within markets. And I think Kamijo represents part of that group of, you know, most of the people I know who collect Kamijo are, you know, under 50. They have an immediate visceral response to the work. They like the work. None of them that I know, you know, live with live with living poodles. You know, they just have these poodles. So well, you couldn't get a dog during the pandemic. So this was your way of getting a dog. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. So we'll see now that now that, you know, dog breeders have opened their doors again. Will dog paintings continue? Or is Kimmy Joe going to be written off to the sporting, you know, and hunting sales? Mm. I doubt it. I, you know, I think, you know, there's good gallery representation and there's good shows that happen in America and there's, you know, good shows that happen abroad and, you know, different people like different aspects of the work. I know some people who want a very bright pink 
fuchsia poodle or pair of poodles and other people who want a really proper figurative one and still yet other people who are like, just show me an abstract one. So again, you know, within, within one theme of the standard poodle, there are many particular outcomes. Uh, let's move on to Louis Fertino, who's sort of same thing. It's not like all this happened this quarter. It's been happening for a while. There just happened to be this very strong sale in May of 365,000, which is, you know, more than double the previous high number. Something that maybe caught a lot of people by surprise. You know, I would have thought that that painting that was sold in Hong Kong, that first real proper work to come out for auction, I believe it was like lot one in there. October sale last year was was a better picture. But Fertino is a name that's been, you know, hunted for and hunted after for a long time. It follows a certain trend of figuration that, you know, a large number of people are collecting at the moment. You know, Dorn Langberg, I think you can put into that group as well. So this kind of, you know, classically trained, looser figuration, shall I dare call it school of Clemente in a lot of ways. That's that's actually pretty good. Yes. Miniature Clemente, I think, is what you have to think about it because because size is important here. In, in PG-13 plus, right? Yes. So, <laughs> I don't I don't know how many Upper East Side restaurants are hanging for Tino's on their walls yet, <laughs> but I think there is a broad collector base still for these. I remember I was speaking to a collector who had been asking about Fertino, you know, over a year ago and we had found one for them. And I asked him again, if he'd be interested in more. And he said, oh yes, definitely. You know, I, you know, I love the painting that I found and I'd love to find more. So, you know, I don't think the full story has been written. I think what we will see is what, again, like so many young artists, where does the young work sit against the early work sit against maturing styles and themes? So what is what is the recent output and how is that placed and how is that priced vis-a-vis what was in those first really early shows, you know, if it's still lives or plants or, you know, ropier figures. There was a moment with Fertino, and I think this is happens to a lot of young artists is that you get one good result for a great artwork that comes out and then all of a sudden you get a bunch of bad stuff not bad just early stuff not fully resolved you know draftsmanship's not quite as tight you know maybe it's very academic even you know it's not really the style of it just happens to be made by the same hand and these things start to pull down on the market until you get a result like we saw for Tristan drinking soup that kind of reestablish you know the justification for these things to trade privately between 150 and 250. So, you know, I think I think that's a lot of it. You know, I think there was there was a wobble in there because there was so much ropey material that was getting shoved into various sales online day mid-season just because it was a name, right? And not because it was the quality that should justify a big price. There's one retrade here. The seller was punished for exactly that. It was bought in October for 65,000 and then resold in June for 42,000. That's morning glory, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think you'll, you'll see that, right? Because what is morning glory? It's a flower. If what is morning glory not, it's not a single male nude, a very, you know, sultry, swarthy, you know, head portrait like the one from Hong Kong in red, or it's not, you know, a pair of figures dancing or embracing. It's, it's none of those things. And that's what Bertino initially captured the imagination of collectors of all stripes with, was these types of paintings. People thought, hey, this is good. This is a bit radical. This is pushing something. 
you know, I'm going to pay attention to this and be excited about it. And I, you know, I think those paintings that get an artist to that place aren't always, they're not going to be the market darling ones, right? Those are the paintings that get made along the way. They have their value. They are intrinsically good. They show strokes of what is to come, but they aren't going to be those breakout pieces. And you're not going to get 3X by buying it at auction one year and trying to sell it the following year. Rarely does that occur anyway. You know, you've got to get things time to breathe. We're, we're not all so fortunate to do so. Um, but you do see that in turning something around too quickly, that is not of the gold standard of a particular artist's output, you might get punished in that regard. Or punished or just not see the return that you were hoping for. Punished is, I mean, it's not even the person who's doing the retrading that they're losing money there. It's a signal to everyone else that there's no appetite for this. And we were talking about this earlier with uh, Bernhard's. I mean, uh, something similar happened with one of the Kate Moss paintings. And it's just a sign that the, you know, the, this has been a crazy market where everything sells. Uh, you know, Chrissy's just announced 87% sell-through rate for the first half of the year on everything they sell. I mean, it just seems like everything will sell. And then here's the market saying, no, not everything. And we see you. But 13% of it didn't sell, right? Within that 87, there's 13% to make up the full hundred that's now sitting in storage in a box somewhere, like waiting to get retrieved or has a low ball post-sale offer against it. Right. Or is coming to a no reserve sale near you. <laughs> or or we'll sell for 30 times it, that in three years from now because nobody remembers anything. <laughs> I've, I've seen crazier things happen. I saw, I remember a Basquiat painting that BI'd in New York got turned around in London and made 3X, it's estimate. Crazy stuff happens. Another great 80s name is uh, Ross Blechner, and he set a record price in early May at Christie's of 277. He's not a heavily traded artist by any means, uh, but I thought that was, again, is that is that just our 80s story that we keep coming back to or, or something else? I think I think there's it's an 80s story, but I think there's also, you know, there's been rumblings for the idea that Blechner feels undervalued you know, against contemporaries and that which comes later. You know, is it marigold paintings? Is it stripes? Certainly the paintings available in May, the painting that made the record in May, suggests that stripes are the top works because five out of the top 10, so 50% of the top 10 of works ever, you know, sold by Blechner are stripe paintings, followed, you know, on the heels of a couple of marigolds, some birds, and two kind of seemingly random series of paintings. So, you know, the argument there says stripes are are the Blechner, the Blechner thing. But, you know, the, the distance we have to go between the record and the next follow-up is 2022 to 2006. So we've had a big gap in terms of record breakers. Um, you know, but I think there's been a concerted effort in places to, you know, there's been a gallery shift. There's been a repositioning to say that, you know, Blechner is another name in the American canon that feels a bit overlooked, you know? And if we look at our live art artist momentum and our little FinTech chart, we do see a peak and then a disastrous dip and then a little rise. And now we see another, you know, a dip again and a rise. So I'm not gonna bet the farm on Ross Blechner, but I think there's, you know, we, ha we haven't seen the whole story yet. Again, sort of someone who has the potential for a fair bit of discovery. There's been plenty of interest. We have lots of people, and there's lots of interesting bodies of work. I think this other painting, this uh, at a $12,000 estimate, 
Um, it's called Poverty Bouquet, but it's sold for 126000 That That mm-hmm. suggests there's you know more indicative of demand. And again, de- depth of bidding, and that's an 80s painting, right? So that's also part of it. And the interesting thing, too, with Bluckner is it's, you know, the, the records for an 80s painting. So is it going to be that Bluckner's market standouts for him are going to be those 80s paintings, right? Like, that's going to be the apex moment. Everything that comes after will sort of slot in underneath that, even if primary is somewhere north of that in terms of secondary market, you know, that that's going to be the canonical, historical, important moment of his story, right? Like his place within that. You know, I think we could say the same truly about Peter Halley, right? We're not talking about Peter Halley in Q2 of 2022. There's certainly a moment where Halley started breaking out. And the question was, you know, Neo Geo, here we go. Is it, is it 80s or like, can it be a late Rolodex painting? And I think the answer is, it's going to be 80s first and everything else comes after. Well, Waddington Cousteau had a big booth of mm-hmm. um, uh, Halley at Freeze, I want to say, four or five years ago. But Halley's an interesting one because for as much as he's an American artist, there's a lot of that stuff that's sitting in Europe, too. So, you know, there's a transatlantic artist where the career might be bigger. He might be like Hasselhoff of the art world, right? Like, might be bigger in Europe than it is in America. Yeah, Gunter Sachs owned a couple of those paintings famously in that Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Rudolph uh, 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 townhouse. I mean, I, I can see it in like a Stad or summer. It's, you know, ski chalet or, you know, on the on the Belgian coastline in Kanaka, you know, big old stripey painting in the Rolotex. Late, late 80s modernist build. All right. So this is a little far afield of, of the subject of this podcast. But, you know, one of the trends I think we keep seeing in the numbers, I, I really need to do a deep dive to try and sort of prove it. But it feels like the dominance of the biggest artists, the Warhols, Picassos, you know, has waned and we are getting many more artists having value and their markets being significant. And just this discussion, we've been talking about lots of really great painters who are not terribly well valued, not because they're not good painters, just because there's never been that kind of consolidation around them and building it. And there's almost the suggestion that as art becomes or seems to become more popular, that there's a lot of art that out there, a lot of really good art out there waiting to be bid up or, or you know, uh, distributed. Re- rediscovered, redistributed. You know, I think there's a whole host of names out there. You know, as we toss out, you know, thinking about Blechner and some of these others, like Sean Landers, right? Like, is there going to be a... Sean Landers, I think, and Mike Bidlow had big results coming out of the Amon sale Amon's as well, sale. right? Yeah, you know, and that... That again, dealer dealer sale, you know, really loved by dealers. That was a deep drink to Kool-Aid moment. But I think we're having probably more people, both who are trade or trade-minded or actually just true civilian private collectors who have drank the Kool-Aid. You know, they've read the books, they've seen stuff. And when something feels scary and overvalued, they start to look at other things or they just go official gut check reaction and go for things. I thought the Sean Landers Picasso painting in the Christie sale was a great picture, you know, that it stayed with an estimate. And I, I would have thought, like, how do I buy this thing? It was a heart stopping painting, I have to say. I walked into the, the show of it and you were like, WTF. Yeah, oh, good. So I, I think my my viewpoint on that is that we have more collectors globally who have moved past the names in the gift shop, who have drank the Kool-Aid, who are looking around more broadly, listening to more dealers, you know, getting more educated and seeing things that are great and not just because 
they're the ones that get the most museum circulation or the artists who have museums named after them. So I think, I think that's part of it. And it's just hunting for things, you know, everyone's got a different motivation for why they hunt for things, but I think there is a point at which you start to look around and you think this is this stuff over here is nuts. Like what else is there that is, seems good and seems like it could have a rebirth moment or it could come back in the fold a bit or was in the fold and now it's on the outskirts. And, you know, maybe I'll jump in now for this, a black, you know, I'll go for a stripy right. blackner of the eighties more than, you know, while at the same time, somebody else is like, you're the next Nara and I'm going for you, right? Because those things are hitting the same price points. It's that stratification, markets within markets, little collector pods. And I don't mean they're in, you know, WhatsApp channels talking to each other about these things. And then, you know, some of them probably know each other, but it's that glo- it's a globalization of the art market that's getting more people to the table looking at more things. Yeah, it's the deep cuts are getting better airplay. You know, we had a phase where it was about representation and I don't think anyone's unhappy about that, but one hopes that the next layer of that that is it's also people reconsider a lot more art. Well, well, it's also should I buy an A Blechner rather than a B Warhol, right? Same price. Should I buy an A by this artist or B minus by that artist? What what is the best possible thing I can buy today? What am I going to get the most out of both? You know. Uh, emotionally, intellectually, but also financially over the long term. Or whatever your matrix of motivation today is. I mean, this is a live art market insights podcast, but we, we, we do try to look at things from an aesthetics principle as much as the market principle. It, it is art, first of all, all that it's uh, the distributive aspect of it is secondary. Let's not leave uh, one final artist out in the cold. Danielle Orchard deserves uh, some attention. She's had a bunch of work sell. It looks like these are kind of almost like confirmation prices. She In November, one work sold in New York for 287500 And then in Hong Kong in June, we had one for 176 In March, we had one for 138 Then we had a couple of works around the $80,000 range in May. And it's almost as if people are saying, yeah, I'll, I'll pay that for a Daniel Orchard. I think to an extent, right? I think that sale in New York in November, I can't remember if it was a if it was part of like a charity sale or not. I kind of think it was, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would have to check that. Um, but I think that that 287 price point was a real, you know, it was her first painting to hit the market in terms of in terms of a public secondary sale, but it was also, you know, a little bit of a two time in the in the art world, right? Like it was a little nutty. Like November was pretty nutty, and uh, you know, and a lot of people were you know kind of like, wait, what? what? Like Daniel Orchard makes close to three hundred thousand dollars. Like says who? Even as a charity sale. Yeah, I, I seem to recall that there's a number of really good artworks in that charity group. Where, where Danielle Orchard will go, we'll see. Certainly, there's been some stabilization of pricing, some good results clocked in the subsequent, you know, less than a year that follows. You know, the heels painting that was sold in. The pool scene suggests that you can still command six figures for these things. You know, will Daniel Orchard own this space? You know, Jenna Griffin's got a book out on it now. So, and it's a big one. So, you know, we'll we'll see. This is also more of this abstract figuration that we seem to kind of be moving towards alongside landscape painting and a bit more abstraction. If we feel that 2020 was dominated by pure portraiture, you know, I think we're starting to see that like we're seeing rediscovery or people expanding their horizons into other 
you know, not just the flavor of the month or like the true, you know, tried and true blue chip, you know, other aesthetics and other types of artistic output. So I think, you know, again, as I've said on other things in this podcast, I don't think we've, we've seen the full story here yet. Probably one to keep tabs on. We'll probably see it wax and wane along the way. And we might have a breakout moment. I hope she's a career artist. And, you know, the story's yet to be written fully. So to wrap this all up, since we've just done, the you know, the view of the quarter and what's hot, and, you know, everyone's got their levels of trepidation, anticipation about what's coming in the future. I'm not one for people, you know, predicting markets, uh, but I do want to ask you sort of to close, to look a little forward past the summer break to September and all, just based on the conversations you're having, what's what's sort of the temperature behind the scenes? I think, I mean, this this is sort of like tuning in at Sunday at noon and looking for the lock of the week, isn't it? Um, you know, what's what's my one o'clock and what's my four o'clock? What's my what's my October? What's my November play? The conversation so far, it feels like this summer is more summer than ever. And I think that's partly due to the fact that more people feel comfortable with travel. Travel is a lot less restrictive than it has been in the past. I was talking to a friend who has very comfortably stationed himself in the south of France, and he said, there's more Americans here than I can remember in the last 10 years. And, you know, I think people people are on the move right now. So it's a little bit snoozier, a little bit sleepier in terms of focus. We'll see what August brings. I've always found August a lovely time to, you know, clock a big deal. Primary market seems to be ticking along just fine. You still, you know, a real fight to get things. You know, people still feel very comfortable there. You know, people are still hunting for things overall. Uh, you know, I'd say it's probably just as easy to move an A picture as it was a year ago. B picture is probably a little harder. Traipsing into the fall, you know, it'll be enlightening as to what, you know, those first September sales look like, what their makeup is. I've always thought in the last few years, that's a great place for mid-market material to appear. I, you know, I was looking at Christie's online um, contemporary curated sale last night. Good prices already being in advanced bidding for Ellen Drexler in there, which we talked about in Q1. You know, I think that trend's certainly on point to keep going. October, the London sales, there's been some press around kind of how they're, you know, they sell definitely the seat of the European market. For now, the, you know, the question that's been rumbling around is how and when will Paris overtake London? I don't know if it's that or, you know, those cities, just everything becomes a little bit more regional. But for now, London certainly remains the place to, you know, clock a big bacon if you're not going to do it in New York or Big Monet. Obviously, all of the great British artists that's your home base for those things. Do you sell as much young trendy art there outside of the freeze week? TBD, right? That that's a big that's a big question mark. But you don't see people turning away from all of the young artists. This is not like 2015 where things everyone was like, okay, we're done with the the Marillos and the Lucian Smiths and all, and now we want to go back to the big names. I don't think so. I think if anything, I think some of the bigger names that got cast aside in the last few years might come back into the fold a bit. I wouldn't count Stingle down and out. Look at the recent Pinot hang, like it is Stingle-centric um, in a good way. You know, it's got the big foil room and it's got a lovely triptych. Um, and there was a decent Stingle sale in this last quarter, which I took as like a, a marker, like, hey, there's still life, you know, or maybe it's it's coming out of hibernation finally. Exactly. I think the same way we saw like a couple of Grochon sales, both in, in terms of the art fairs and elsewhere, and like the reappearance of that name within an evening sale context, right? 
November, I feel like will be November. The, the real question will be what is the appetite for bringing things for sale publicly or privately for that regard, vis-a-vis what has to come for sale. And I think that will that will command what the makeup of the fall looks like. I think there's a lot of people judging now, is it like, am I better off placing something that a year ago, I was like, Hong Kong is a no-brainer, now is it better to go New York? Where do we feel the most attention and appetite is going to be? Is it time to be risky and, and go for it and punt it out there? Or is it time to be risk adverse and if you have to sell it, sell it in your home market? No, I think those are the big questions. I think it is TBD at the moment, which I know sounds elusive and hard to pin down, but I think we, you know, I think we will be in a, if I had to call it, I think we'd be in like a 2016, 2017 kind of market more than a 2021 kind of market. It's always TBD. We've spent the last year and a half basically saying this is not a great time when it was a great time. You know, we've been climbing a wall of worry through all of this. So it's interesting to hear um, Guillaume Cerruti recently sort of said he, he still sees the demand there. It's sourcing material is the issue. And for them, that comes down to are there big, significant collections that are going to come to market? All right. I think that's been more than enough. George, thank you. Thank you. Man. Always a pleasure. The big, the big quarter end rundown. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.